11. I'm going to actually go ahead and open up uh, our text with verse 5 of chapter 15, as this kind of leads into our text for today, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 16. So let's begin the reading at Revelation 15 and verse 5. Uh, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the marks of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. This ends this reading in God's uh, holy word. Let's look once again uh, to prayer, to the Lord in prayer. Lord, our God in heaven, we do thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you, O Lord, that you have revealed your holy word, your truth to us, and we pray that today we would have ears to hear this message which you bring, which the Spirit has revealed unto the churches. O Lord, be with us, we pray, in this coming hour, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, what are the reasons 
for which you might praise God. So I ask you that question. I imagine that many of you in your minds immediately would think of a number of reasons. You would say that I praise God because God is love and his mercy abounds. Some of you might say that I praise God because he is powerful. He does everything that his will commands. The others of you might say I praise God because he is good. Yet others, I praise God because he is holy. There are many reasons for which you might praise the living God. And all of those would be wonderful reasons, reasons with biblical justification for which you ought to give praise to God. But to that list, I would add yet another reason that you and I ought to praise God. And it's a reason that praise is given to him in this passage and in many other passages in Holy Scripture as well. And the reason is, is that I praise God because he is a God of wrath. That might seem hard to say, hard to do, and yet that's exactly the thing which this passage does. The angels say to the Lord, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. The Lord is praised as a God of wrath. Now, uh, many people in our day and age certainly find this idea of the wrath of God uh, to be distasteful. Uh, Whenever surveys are taken... Uh, the vast majority of people uh, in our society uh, would believe that there is a God who is loving, uh, that there is a God who is forgiving, there is a God who brings people to heaven. Those are ideas which are generally liked and accepted. But what they have trouble believing is that God is wrathful towards sin and that he brings people to everlasting punishment in hell. In fact, one of the hallmarks of liberal or progressive Christianity is that they have changed their view of God on this very point above all others. That no longer is sin preached as sin. No longer is God preached as a God of judgment. As one who punishes sin and punishes sinners. No longer is hell believed as something uh, that is real. Many find this idea uh, distasteful. But what we have to say is that when we come to Holy Scripture, that very thing which many find distasteful is something which Scripture proclaims time and time and time again. That the wrath of God is real. That His judgment is certain. Uh, that hell is a reality, and that we ought to listen to these things and even be able to praise a God who is a God of wrath. Well, how do we get there? Well, let's open up today's passage uh, to see what it is that we can learn about God's wrath and even how this is one of the excellencies or the perfections of God. I want us to see five different things today about the wrath of God as it is opened up in these first five bowls that we read of in Revelation chapter 16. And the first of these things 
is that God's wrath is the expression of His holy character. Secondly, that God's wrath is relentless and certain. The third thing is, is that God's wrath that God's wrath is just and fitting. Fourthly, that God's wrath ensures the deliverance of his people. And fifth, that God's wrath calls for our repentance. God's wrath is an expression of his holy character. God's wrath is relentless and certain. God's wrath is just and fitting. God's wrath ensures the deliverance of his people, and God's wrath calls for our repentance. Those are five things uh, today. Well, the first of these that we see is indeed that God's wrath is the expression of his holy character. And this becomes evident when we notice the setting that we see of the pouring out of these seven bowls. This was one of the points that we made last week, was it not? So we look at the end of uh, chapter 15. There the setting is one of God's holiness, God's supreme holiness. We read there of a sanctuary. Now you remember that there was an earthly tabernacle, and the most inner part of that earthly tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, in which God himself especially dwelt. That ordinary people could not enter into the Holy of Holies because that is where God was. Well, the scriptures say that that earthly tabernacle is actually a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. That God's chief dwelling place is in heaven itself. And there, out of this heavenly sanctuary, God dwells. And out of God's presence there come seven angels. Children, do you see it in your minds? Seven angels. Each one of these angels covered in pure, bright linen. Golden sashes around their chest. They had just come from the presence of God, the God who is holy. And yet each one of these carried in their hands, as it were, seven different, uh, they carried seven different plagues, each one carrying a different plague. And they were then given a golden bowl full of God's wrath. And then suddenly, out of this sanctuary of God's presence, we have a picture here of smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And none could enter this sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then the next thing that we read out of verse 1 of chapter 16 is that suddenly there is a loud voice heard from the temple. And this can be none other than the voice of God himself. And he there tells the seven angels... Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so if there's anything that we can first of all say about the wrath of God, is that it comes from the God who himself is infinitely holy. 
One of the primary things that we can say about God is that He is infinitely holy. Do you remember that vision in Isaiah 6 of the cherubim, even as they're covering uh, their faces and crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. God is infinitely and perfectly holy. He's set apart. He's different from the creation that He has made. And because of God's holy perfections, he necessarily then is indignant toward all that is not holy. And that's the key point. Okay, we made this point last week, that when we speak of God's wrath or God's anger, it's crucial that you understand that it is not a kind of petulant flying off the handle. It's not a, a losing of his temper. Okay, God doesn't lose control. He doesn't throw a tantrum. It's not like the selfish anger that you and I often express. But rather, God's wrath is the, is, uh, the holy God's steady, uncompromising opposition to all that is evil. Uh, Stephen Charnick put it this way, the Puritan Stephen Charnick. That a love of holiness cannot be without a hatred of everything that is contrary to it. And as God necessarily loves himself, so he must necessarily hate everything that is against himself. And as he loves himself for his own excellency and holiness, he must necessarily detest whatsoever is repugnant to his holiness because of the evil of it. In other words, God is so holy that his wrath is his necessary opposition to all that is not holy like him. For him, as it were, to be tolerant of evil would be for him to not love the holiness which is himself. I just want to say to you that if you are one who finds this idea of the wrath of God to be offensive, could I ask you, and I, and I say this lovingly, could I ask you, could it be that it is you have not really understood just how holy God really is? Maybe the problem isn't with God, but it's a problem with us and our small conceptions of God. And that the first place that you and I need to be is, as it were, on our knees, overwhelmed by a sense of the majesty and the holiness of God. For it is that, it is that context, the context of the holiness of God, that then makes sense of his wrath. If you try to divorce the two, then his wrath seems pointless. It seems offensive. It almost seems evil in itself, but it's only when we rightly understand that wrath is the expression of the holy God for who he is, that we see it indeed is necessary and part of the beauty of his holiness that he'd be opposed to everything uh, that is against it. So that's the first thing that we see in this passage is, indeed, that God's wrath is the expression 
of his holy character. But secondly, now, I want us to see that God's wrath is relentless and certain. For indeed, as we go on in our passage, uh, we see that as the holy God tells the seven angels to go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God, that they begin to do it. One bowl poured after another bowl poured after uh, another bowl. Now, in the book of Revelation, earlier uh, we considered seven seals that were broken. And then seven trumpets that were announced. And we said about each of those that these revealed, uh, as it were, the judgments of God over the course of history. And now as we come to the seven bowls, I believe that it's the same thing. That the God of heaven is even now revealing his wrath against sinful creation. Isn't that what Romans 1 tells us, right? Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it says there that uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That even now, those who are suppressing the truth of God Those who are opposed to the Lord in his ways even now have God's wrath directed against them. And that's what these bowls are revealing. It is the wrath of God that comes against his creation. Now, what we're going to see next week, especially as we move to bowls 6 and 7, are those things which just precede the final judgment of God and then those things which occur on the day of judgment when his wrath is fully revealed. So we'll see that, well, it'll be two weeks from now, next time that I preach to you, okay? But here, in these first five bowls, we see a number of ways in which God's wrath is even now directed against, uh, against those uh, who are ungodly. And what we have here are not, a, not a, again, a successive series of things. It's not that the second bowl is only poured out once the first bowl is finished, and then after the first and second, then come the third, and then the fourth, in that order. But rather we have, as it were, a cumulative uh, accumulation of things. Okay, Each of these five bowls here, these first five bowls, expressing different ways in which God's wrath is being poured out. And you'll notice as well that as we walk briefly through these five bowls, that if you're familiar with uh, the plagues against Egypt, in the book of Exodus, you'll see hints of some of those plagues. Well, what were those plagues but the pouring out of the wrath of God against the ungodly? And so here it uses the language of those plagues to speak of God's continued wrath. And in a similar way, we have reflections, especially of the trumpet judgments that we heard earlier in Revelation. There's similarities Uh, Two, except that these bold judgments are even more intense. Uh, The trumpet judgments often spoke of God's wrath against a third of this or a third of that, a proportion. But here, the effect of God's wrath is full and final and total. Let's walk through some of these 
uh, some of these things. Uh, first of all, we read of the first bowl in verse 2. Uh, this is one in which uh, suddenly harmful and painful sores come upon the people who bear the mark of the beast and who worship its image. It sounds similar to the sixth plague against Egypt, doesn't it? The plague of boils. But it's an awful thing. Children, would you like to have big, terrible sores all over your body? Even if you get one sore on your body, it hurts. It's painful. But Oh, here we're told of those who are diseased and sick in every part of their body. I think it points to the way that sometimes the Lord uses even vicious and incurable diseases as a means of judgment against uh, the ungodly. Uh, The second bowl then is in verse 3. And we are told that this this, uh, this second angel pours out his bowl into the sea and it becomes like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Okay, here we have Uh, The sea, again, imagine the entire ocean turning into blood and the stench that that would bring. And it points to the way that the sea is, can even be for some, uh, 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 an instrument of destruction, whether it be uh, maritime disasters. But this points as well to the death of sea life, and especially in the first century, the kind of uh, commercial uh, crisis that would bring with the death of all uh, the sea life. Okay, and so again, it points to uh, a kind of end of commerce and trade as well in the second bowl. Well, the third bowl goes on to describe rivers and springs of water that then become blood. What are the rivers and the springs of water? That's the fresh supply of drinking water, isn't it? What happens if you no longer have any water to drink? Okay, and it points to as it were, this judgment of taking away some of the necessities of life, that which might come with drought or famine. It's, it's reflective again of one of the plagues in Egypt. You remember the Nile turning into blood. It's the third bowl of judgment. The fourth bowl we find in verses 8 and 9. And here it is. A bowl that is poured out on the sun, allowed to scorch people with fire. That is, instead of the sun providing light and comfort to us, it now brings agonizing pain uh, to, uh, to the people as they experience the heat of that sun. The fifth bowl, then, is beginning in verse 10, verses 10 and 11. We're told that this fifth bowl uh, is poured out chiefly on the throne of the beast and its kingdom being uh, plunged into darkness. What's the throne of the beast? Well, we read earlier, do you remember about the beast back in uh, chapter 13? And we said that it represents kind of ungodly, anti-Christian government, an anti-Christian society. And it points to the fact that many kind of uh, um, uh, look to uh, the society around them and to government especially as a viable alternative, as it were, to Jesus Christ and His ways. Can't we build human society up on our own and to make it flourishing? And the point is here is that God brings down such empires. He brought down the Roman Empire. He brought down Nazi Germany. He brought down the old Soviet Union. And time and again, he brings down empires which set themselves up in opposition to him and his ways. 
Here it describes them as being plunged into darkness. Uh, Again, the image is that of the plague of darkness that was against Egypt. Well, here what we have are, again, a a succession of various judgments that represent a, a whole spectrum of ways in which God comes in his wrath upon the ungodly. Joel Beakey, uh, in his commentary, lists uh, some of the other ways that may be even indicated by these bowls. He says it may be, for some, inoperable cancer, or a sudden heart attack, or an exploding plane, or a famine brought by drought, or wars and rumors of wars, or a tsunami, or a hurricane, or civil upheaval. And the thing is that we must see in each of these things the hand of God at work. And God has many purposes in the things that he brings. In the lives of believers, he often brings trial to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus, at times to bring us into his presence in heaven. But one of God's purposes in his providential dealings as well is to bring his judgment and his wrath against the ungodly. And the point of these five bowls, one stacked upon another, is no matter how you try to escape the wrath of God, it is relentless. And there is no place of safety except one that we're going to talk about soon, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is relentless, and it is certain. The God of heaven has these bowls of wrath in his hand. We've only talked about the first five. Six and seven are much worse. The Lord is pouring these bowls out, even in the age in which we live, his wrath being expressed against ungodliness of men. So we've seen, first of all, how God's wrath is the expression of his holy character. We've seen, secondly, how it is relentless and certain. Well, the third thing is this now. The third thing that we see here is that God's wrath is just and fitting. God's wrath is just and fitting. Uh, One response that many have, maybe some of you are having this even now as you hear a sermon like this. And you may say simply, well, this doesn't seem fair. People don't deserve this. What What is God doing? Do people really deserve this kind of treatment, as it were, from the hand of God. Well, first thing we have to remember is what I said earlier about the holiness of God. But also, I just want to bring to your attention that what the scriptures make clear is this. It is that God's wrath is never directed against an innocent or undeserving people. But rather Always the scriptures present God's wrath as being directed against rebellious and obstinate sinners. In other words, what scripture portrays time and again is that those who experience the wrath of God deserve it. And that God's action is just. So Romans 1, if I can point to that again, Romans chapter 1 And verse 18, that the wrath of God 
is now revealed, okay, against what? Revealed from heaven against what? Against innocent people? No, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We're going to point to another verse, Ephesians chapter 2. And verses 1 through 3 say it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, here it is, children of wrath. Wait a second. Why is God's wrath directed against us? Well, he just described why it is. It is because we followed the course of the world. We follow the devil. We are disobeying the Lord. We are living in the passions of our flesh. We're living with ourselves as our own standard, as if there is no God in the world. And he says it is because of that that we are children of wrath. Dear friends, this same point is made here in Revelation chapter 16 also. Did you notice verse 2 when it talked about that first bull? Who did these harmful and painful sores come upon? Well, it came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. Okay? To say that they bore the mark indicates... Ownership and likeness, meaning that they followed the beast, okay, that is Satan and his ungodly agents in this world, they followed the way of this world, they followed the devil himself rather than the true and the living God. And to worship its image indicates idolatry. It means that people made idols that they've worshipped, the things of this world, whether those things be fame or power or money or any number of false gods that people make, they worship those things rather than the true God. And it is them, those who are culpable as the followers of the beast, those who bear the mark of the beast and worship, worship its image, who receive the just wrath of God. And similarly, we see this in verse 5. After the third bowl is poured out, then the angel proclaims these words. It says, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. The God who brings these judgments isn't unfair, but He is just. And why is His judgment just? What have the wicked done? Verse 6 says, They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. That's what. So they are receiving just retribution for their sin. And so indeed, the cry goes up in verse 7, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. You see, the testimony of Scripture throughout is that the wrath of God is just and it is fitting. Sometimes people ask the question, though, they say this, Did not Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount in which he told us 
to turn the other cheek when somebody does something against us, to pray for those who persecute us rather than seeking revenge, to go the extra mile even when people ask things of us unjustly. If that's the case, if Jesus told us to do that, why then does God bring retributive justice? Is God telling us to do one thing, but he's doing another? It's a good question, isn't it? The answer is this. The answer is this, that the reason that God tells us not to retaliate isn't because the idea of retribution is in itself bad, but rather that we can be confident that God will bring righteous and just retribution. Whereas when we seek to bring it, it's so often full of sin. Right? And so that's why Romans 12 and verse 19 gives this command to Christians. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. There's the command. You don't seek revenge. But why? Leave it to the, uh, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And do you see that that is our confidence ultimately? That the God who knows what is truly in the heart of man, who sees all and always acts righteously and justly, is a God who pours out his wrath in a way that is just and fitting. And we can never bring any charge against him that sticks, for our God is a just God. That's the third thing about God's wrath. It is just and fitting. But now fourthly, this, that God's wrath ensures the deliverance of his people. God's wrath ensures the deliverance of his people. That is, that God's wrath is necessary to ensure the salvation of his own. I mean, look at the world around us. What is it that we see when we often look at the world around us? Well, we see people who have made idols out of money and sex and fame. And they seem to be the ones that are thriving and successful. It seems like in the world in which we live, to get ahead in your career, to really be successful in the workplace, you have to cheat and lie and steal and distort the truth and walk all over others. And if you seek to be a person of integrity, you don't get anywhere. We live in a society that is promoting godless immorality. The Christian church is often persecuted by godless government or uh, adherence of false religion. Dear friends, these things are true wherever we look. And I simply want to ask you, is this the way that the world should be? Is this the way that you desire that the world would be? Do you want this present world to continue forever like this? And I hope that the answer is no. No, I don't. Well, if that's your answer, the good news is, though mankind in ourselves are incapable of preventing such 
uh, immorality and such wickedness that we have a God of wrath who sees and who is executing vengeance. And that's why we read back in Revelation 6 the cry of those martyrs that were going up. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a robe, a white robe, and told to rest a little longer. Well, those martyrs who were beneath the altar now hear, as it were, the response to that here in verse 7 of chapter 16. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We ought to take heart, dear friends, that our Lord is going to bring this world to its rights. And what that means is this, is that if you are one who is redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, covered with his blood, if you are in the hands of your God, kept in his embrace, loved by him, I can say to you that you are in the most secure position in the entire world because he rules over every wicked force that is at work. And no matter how much wickedness seems to prevail in the world in which we live, dear friends, it does not have the last word because our God is a God of wrath and of justice. And when God is the God of wrath, it means that he will keep secure until that final day, his people, when they will dwell in a world, in a land of pure delight, where there is going to be no more sin and no more wickedness and no more injustice and no more godlessness forever and ever. Our God is a God of wrath who is able to bring to justice those who oppose him and who is able to save to the uttermost all who look to him in faith. And so God's wrath ensures the deliverance of his people. But this moves us fifth and finally now. Why should we praise God for his wrath? It is this. It is that God's wrath calls for our repentance. God's wrath calls for our repentance. If you look with me at verse 9 and verse 10 or excuse me, verse 11, verses 10 and 11. It's really, these are sad verses. Here it describes the fourth angel pouring out his bowl on the sun, allowed to scorch people with fire. But as they are experiencing this judgment of God, we are told, what what do they do? That they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And then the same thing with the fifth bowl, verses 10 and 11. And there we are told that even as the bowl is thrown on the beast and the kingdoms of this world are plunged into darkness, instead of repenting and turning to the Lord, what do people do? They gnaw their tongues in anguish and they curse the God of heaven for their pain and the sores and they do not repent of their deeds. It's a sad picture of those who are experiencing the wrath of God, that wrath which ought to drive them to repentance and worship God, and they are refusing to. Dear friends, the same theme is repeated throughout the book of Revelation. Do you know that hell is going to be full, not of repentant sinners, but rather hardened sinners who are cursing God for all eternity? 
So how do we make sense of this? What does this tell us? Well, it tells us this, that God's wrath alone does not produce repentance. And that teaches us that there is a great danger for you and for me in saying these words. That I'll get serious about God later. I'll repent of my sin. I'll turn to God at some future time. Later. These people did not repent later when they experienced the wrath of God. And so it is with us as well, that if we are saying later, if we are not getting serious with God today, what makes us think that our hearts are going to be any different a week from now or a month from now or several years or decades from now that we're going to want to repent then when we don't want to now? So none of us ought to say later. Do you hear that, children? We don't say, I'll get serious about God when I get grown up. No, now is the time. Now is the time. Believe upon Jesus today. And the point is is this, is that in order to repent, dear friends, in order to repent, what you and I need above all else is a new heart. We need a heart that suddenly becomes alive to God, a heart that fears His wrath, a heart that sees the beauty of Jesus Christ and wants to flee to Him. And we need that new heart today. So you need to cry out to God, God, give me a new heart that's responsive to Your Word and that repents and looks to Jesus. The Puritan Thomas Adams said this, that there is no other fortification against the judgments of God, but repentance. And so I say this to each one of you, you need to believe upon Jesus Christ so as to be freed from the judgment that your sins deserve. Believe upon Him. Repent of Him before it is too late and you don't want to repent, just like the people described here. Repent now. Today is the day of salvation. Turn unto the Lord. And the fact is this, as many in this room can testify, dear friends, that when you truly believe upon Christ, the astonishing thing then is no longer, how does this God show wrath upon, or how does, why does this God show wrath upon this world? That's no longer the astonishing thing. The astonishing thing is, why would this God who justly shows His wrath upon sin ever be merciful and forgive a sinner like me? And that becomes a thing of wonder for those who have truly found the grace as it is in Christ Jesus. It is that God's wrath is true and it's just. And that I deserve it as well for my own sin. But oh, the mercy of God in Christ that He would offer Jesus Christ as a Savior for a sinner like me. And when we truly find that, we say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch 
like me. Will you call upon this God, repent of your sin, and look to him in faith, trusting in the one who can save you from the God, the holy God of unrelenting wrath. Oh, dear friends, there's a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God in heaven, we pray indeed that we would take to heart the message that we have heard today. That we would know indeed the reality of your wrath as a holy God. That we would see that it is relentless and certain. That there's no escape from it. That we would see, O Lord, that we are deserving of it. Lord, it is my prayer that each and every one who is here would even now be a person of repentance and faith, looking to Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of their souls. Lord, do this work, we pray, and grant, Lord, that we, along with others, would be able to praise you, even for your wrath, O Lord, for it is part of the perfections of who you are. You are a good and a faithful God. We do indeed praise you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.